0: University. University Press Books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network Animal Studies channel. My name is Kyle Johansson, and I'm a host on this channel. Today, I'm very happy to be interviewing Rachel Robison-Green. Rachel is Assistant Professor of Philosophy at Utah State University, and today we'll be discussing her book Edibility and In Vitro Meat, Ethical Considerations. This book was published in 2022 by Lexington Books. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Rachel.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, it's it's great to have you. Um, Could you please tell us a bit about yourself, such as uh, where you're from, what topics you work on, or anything else you think the listeners might want to know about you?
1: Sure. I'm from Utah, and then I went to UMass Amherst for my graduate program and then ended up back in Utah. I'm an assistant professor of philosophy at Utah State University. The, my areas of interest initially weren't in animal ethics, although the very first paper I ever wrote in philosophy was was on the topic of animals and the badness of death. Um, and so here I am working on this this far in the future. So I must have retained an interest in that. But uh, my my background is in metaethics and in cognitive psychology, um, I've worked on issues pertaining to introspection quite a bit. And that led me to my interest in non-human animals, because I feel that in the literature, animals are treated as if they don't have rich cognitive lives, as if they aren't capable of things like uh, identity, autonomy, as if they can't have meaningful lives, and so on. And so I started pursuing some related questions to those that I addressed in my dissertation, and then just sort of got hooked on the animal ethics literature and started working on that. (laughs)
0: <laughs> okay cool well I mean I'm glad you're working on on topics in animal ethics um i think it's a really important area um so you you yeah you do i, I guess one thing I, I want to ask a little bit about before we start talking about the book itself is um your work in stuff related to public philosophy because uh it sounds like that is just something you've devoted a huge amount of time to and it's and I mean some of the stuff you've you've worked on is uh, stuff in the philosophy of pop culture, but I, I guess that's pretty closely related to public philosophy. Um, it's maybe, maybe even like an area. You could think of it as an area of public philosophy or a kind of public ph- public philosophy. Um, but yeah, so you've done so. Like for example, you're um, a, a public philosophy series editor for the American Philosophical Association's blog. Um, you're the secretary of the Public Philosophy Network. Uh, for a while you' you've been a co-host on the I think therefore I fan podcast which is a philosophy of pop culture podcast and uh, and you co-edited a bunch of volumes from uh, open Court's popular culture and philosophy book series um anyways I, I did you want to speak to any of this stuff it's just it's I think it's really cool that you do so much stuff in, in sort of public philosophy kind of areas
1: thank you sure uh, I love philosophy as a as subject matter and sometimes I hate it as a profession, (laughs) because I think uh, we, we, uh, it's really pretentious sometimes. And there's a lot of prestige driven assessments and things like that, where that I think sort of uh, motivate us to lose the spark of what interested us in philosophy in the first place. And, And, and I think philosophy loses a lot of its power, when we're only thinking about it as directed at a an elect few Uh, so i've done all sorts of public philosophy projects and some of the ones that i'm the most proud of are the ones that have sort of reached out to communities that need philosophy but often don't have access to it or maybe these members of these communities uh philosophize all the time they just don't wouldn't put it in those terms right so so some of the work that i've done that i'm the most proud of and that have been the most personal fulfilling to me personally fulfilling to me involve work with the incarcerated individuals or work with children where uh during the course of that work i encourage them to pursue their own philosophical ideas so it's and and and, and encourage them to think about philosophizing as something and i'm thinking about someone like bell hooks or something like that um uh um or paulo Freire. uh thinking of philosophy and of education in general as a form of liberation uh and so i'm 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 far more motivated i'm far more passionate about thinking about philosophy that way than i am about thinking about philosophy in terms of like you know publishing a p- paper that six people will read and that's not to say that I'm, i don't publish in in peer-reviewed journals or that i don't care about that aspect of the profession but it's not the aspect of the profession that excites me the most
0: yeah, I know. That, that's my impression of you. I mean, like we're today we're going to talk about um, a monograph that you wrote and, a, you know, monographs are academic publications that are often not intended for an, an entirely general audience. But but even in this like academic book you wrote, I think that your um, affinity for and skill with public philosophy came through because you write you wrote the book in a way that was really engaging and accessible and often philosophy monographs are not like that. Um, so, I mean, I think it really comes out, yeah, really, I think that this is like a big thing for you. Like, I think of you as like, kind of like a professional public philosopher or something like that. Oh, I mean, it's, it, it, that. it's really great that you do that too, because I think you're absolutely right that it's bad when philosophy is just a bunch of people sitting, sitting in a metaphorical ivory tower, um, going to each other's talks and reading each other's papers. Um, and that that kind of mentality within philosophy is probably partly or largely responsible for the discipline's decline, because it is declining, I think, in various ways. <laughs> um. So, people like you are helping to keep the discipline alive. Okay.
1: Oh, thanks! I really appreciate that. I mean, I, I, I hope that people. One thing that I'm noticing, though, is that like even within the APA, there seems to be some realization that this is happening. And I think, in part, it has something to do with the political moment that we're in, mm. where the public could really benefit from uh, having access to philosophy to from looking at seeing modeling of what discourse would look like that isn't so toxic uh, and so for me for me and I hope for others I, I think for many others at this point it, it starts to seem kind of pointless to uh, to be engaging in philosophy but without using philosophy to solve the world's discourse problems and to solve the world other problems as well I mean I kind of this is an academic book but I view this issue I mean in vitro meat really might be the wave of the future. And so I think a book like this needs to be written in an accessible way for folks who want to think about what that future might look like.
0: I think you're right about that. And that leads really nicely into my first question about your book, which is just, uh, yeah, why, why did you decide to write this book?
1: I decided to write this book just when I encountered the the concept originally. So I had uh, uh, written some other things in animal ethics and was frequently looking at news media that dealt with emerging technologies and and issues pertaining to animals and when i encountered the in vitro or cultured meat articles and then looked at the comments (laughs) i could see that there's quite quite a bit of outrage over it for various reasons coming from all sources and so i thought oh this is a really interesting issue and uh, wrote some papers on it brought them to conferences wrote some public philosophy on it and then uh, then, then eventually decided to write the book.
0: Okay. Right. Um, well, I, I, mean, I very much enjoyed the book. Um, can you, can you please explain to us? So let, let's, let's get into the, just the sort of some of the general ideas here. Um, so I was, I was hoping you would explain to us what, just what in vitro meat is first of all, cause not everyone will uh, be familiar with the term. Um, and also, um, and this is an easy question maybe, but, but what are some of the main reasons for producing in vitro meat? instead of producing meat via the usual method of just raising animals and then killing the killing those animals
1: one of the issues that i encounter the most when i talk about my work on this issue is that people will think that in vitro meat is the same thing as uh, plant-based meats the kind of newer plant-based meats like impossible burger or beyond and and so it's in vitro meat or cultured meat is not plant-based and it is meat, depending on how you want to understand the metaphysics of meat, and that's something that I address in the book. But um, it's it's it, it's produced taking a cell culture, doing a biopsy on an animal, and then growing, those, growing the resultant cells in a lab. So feeding them a serum, and then growing them into whatever kind of meat you want to grow them into. Burger has been the, the type of meat that's the easiest to produce. The architectural element has been a little challenging uh and so but but that's getting better as well so there's we can now produce all kinds of meats in vitro and then the reasons that one might have for switching to in vitro meat are i think there are at least two primary ones actually three primary ones so one is uh has to do with animal welfare and i tried in the book to be fairly neutral with respect to moral theory because i think that i think that most if not all of the dominant moral theories could actually come down on the side of of the production of in vitro meat um but so but so animal rights animal welfare depending on how you're wanting to think about it well, I mean I'm, I'm sure that all of your listeners are familiar with with the with the sad fact of our world that most of our meat is produced in factory farms and under really really, Awful conditions that cause lots of suffering for animals, and so animals ending animal suffering is one reason to go this route because this need not be a painful procedure for animals. And animals, we could we could have we could um, allow animals to live flourishing lives and produce in vitro meat at the same time. So that's that's one of the concerns uh, that that gives rise to this kind of policy, and another one is um, the environment. So industrial animal agriculture is one of the biggest contributors to um, to carbon and greenhouse uh, carbon and uh, methane em- emissions. And so and also to deforestation and to uh, destruction of soils in various ways. And so industrial animal agriculture is very environmentally unfriendly. And then finally, I think that uh, switching to in vitro meat is good for health. Um, I'm, I'm, I'll emphasize human health. I, it's good for health for a number of reasons. One is that uh, scientists in the lab have a little bit more control over the content of meat, over the, the composition of meat. And uh, and we're not putting the same sorts of hormones and things like that into the in vitro meat that are going into the meat produ- produced via industrial animal agriculture. And then it's good for health in another way, both for human the health of humans and non-human animals, because uh pandemics are often zoonotic, so they're they're often they often
0: uh
1: arise as a result of close interactions with non-human animals Mm
0: -hmm. okay right yeah so um (laughs) uh i mean at least the, the case against um like industrial animal agriculture and and for finding an alternative of some sort is like really over determined um there's just this like Huge number of important reasons <laughs> for rejecting um, industrial animal agriculture as a way of getting food, um, and we'll get in. Yeah, I guess we'll get into some more of this of this stuff as we as we keep talking. Because um, yeah, there's a, the it's yeah. There's these three really kind of fairly distinct reasons. We got environmental reasons, uh, animal welfare slash animal rights type reasons, and then um, human health uh, reasons. I mean, they're not all entirely distinct, but but it'd be I guess conventional to distinguish all of them. Um, Okay, good. So, uh, in, in a couple of chapters in your book, you compare the possibility of transitioning to in vitro meat with uh, the alternative possibility of just abolishing the use of animals in agriculture entirely. Um, on the one hand, you argue that it's possible for a system that includes in vitro meat to be respectful of animals' rights, um, and, and in this way, so transitioning to, in, to towards in vitro meat is in one respect similar to abolition. Both are respectful of animals' rights. Um, On the other hand, though, uh, the reasons you give for transitioning to in vitro meat instead of abolishing animal agriculture, uh, those reasons, as you note, belong to non-ideal theory. Uh, And so transitioning to in vitro meat is in one respect dissimilar to to abolition. Um, I I was hoping that you would explain to us um, why you think we should all things considered transition towards in vitro meat instead of just abolishing animal agriculture.
1: Well, the primary reason is I don't think that we're going to abolish Animal agriculture, industrial animal agriculture. I think that polling demonstrates that that's extremely unlikely. So even if the world's the the, the numbers of the world's vegans and vegetarians are, are increasing, uh, the the percentage of the population, you know, of vegans and vegetarians as compared to meat eaters is uh, is is not increasing because there are more and more meat eaters as citizens of, or or inhabitants of countries that may have previously not been able to have access to meat for socioeconomic reasons, increasingly have access to meat uh, and and become meat eaters. And so the, the numbers of meat eaters are on the rise. And so I just, I think it's the, uh, one thing that I pursue in my book, is, and this is something that's been noted at length, of course, by thinkers like Carol J. Adams. Uh, I think that there are there are identity relations that exist between people and meat, in particular uh, identity relations that uh, exist between masculinity and meat eating. That would make it very challenging to convince 50 you percent know, of the world's population to 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 switch to plant based foods. So I, I just think it's tremendously unlikely <laughs> that that would ever happen. And so if if we really want to Treat animals with respect to um, to to end the tremendous amounts of suffering that occur in industrial that occurs in industrial animal agriculture. I think that we we have to create market alternatives. I think that's our best chance.
0: Okay, right. Um, yeah, thanks. So, uh, yeah, I, I I guess you the thought is um, abolishing the use of animals in agriculture would be great, but it's just way less feasible than transitioning towards in vitro meat. Um, I'm I'm a little so I think this is there's a lot of really cool stuff that could be asked about um, your categorization I guess of the proposal that we treat that we, that we transition towards in vitro meat. So you're you're, categ- you're categorizing this proposal as belonging to non-ideal theory rather than ideal theory and um for for people who aren't so familiar with political philosophy uh, that's a distinction that belongs to political philosophy that you're that you're employing in the book. Um I think so one what, 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 one question I have here about Categorizing about about this about the idea that transitioning towards in vitro meat is non-ideal. One question I have here is just um, the respect in which it's non-ideal, because um, so I I, I understand that um, that you think it's much more feasible to transition towards the use of in vitro meat than it is to uh, abolish animal agriculture, and that's one that's one of the sort of like characterizing features of non-ideal theory. Non-ideal theory is very much concerned with feasibility constraints, Um, but I, I think another feature of non-ideal theory is that you know, like in order for a proposal to be non-ideal it must be in some respects less desirable than proposals that belong to ideal theory like proposals under non-ideal theory in order to belong there kind of need to realize our shared moral and political values to a lesser extent than the stuff in ideal theory would if it were ever implemented um so i mean one question i have here is just like what's 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 kind of less desirable about transitioning towards in vitro meat um and and i guess Possibilities might be that um, there'd be some very negligible small harms done to animals uh, who, whom uh, we extract we extract cells from for purposes of, of growing flesh. Um, maybe those those small harms are kind of, it's kind of non-ideal to have to commit those harms. Um, I, I suppose another thought would be that um, people who are eating in vitro meat are in some way less virtuous than people who just stew meat entirely and only eat plant-based stuff. Um, so maybe like a, a society that, where people are eating in vitro meat is a less virtuous society or something like that. I, I I can't remember if in the book, I don't think in the book you really spend much time dwelling on what would kind of be non-ideal or less desirable about in vitro meat. Um, do you, do you have any thoughts about that? Um, maybe it is in the book. I don't recall
1: it isn't that I think that's a great question I think it's a fair critique of the way that I've cast this I I it reminds me it, there's an analog I think in in the abortion discourse which is which tends to be something like you hear people who are pro-choice frequently saying something like um or at least around here I live in a more conservative area so the, the pro-choice people are maybe a little bit more timid in their in their pro-choice attitudes so they'll say something like you know I respect a woman's right to choose but I think we should make abortion rare and it's like but why if they're you know if they there's nothing wrong with abortion um why why do we need to diminish it so i can I, I i i'm thinking there's a similarity there uh i so what makes what would make the in vitro meat proposal uh a proposal coming from non-ideal theory if if there's really no significant harm or nothing wrong with with creating in vitro meat in the first place? I guess my I, I my initial inclination was to go in the direction that that you just mentioned, which would be kind of the, the virtue uh, perspective. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's an argument to be made that we would, that that we're not at this point in human development, very good at, at being virtuous environmental citizens in a variety of ways. Uh, and, and also we're at the stage in our development, and maybe even by our nature, we tend to be Violent and and hostile, um, and 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 that that might there's there's some reason to think that that has something to do with identity relations to meet in the first place that sort of attachment to violence, um, and so that if we if we ab- abandon even the need to eat flesh in the first place, then we're or the the desire to eat flesh in the first place, then we're. Um, I don't know, sort of detaching ourselves from our more violent roots, but but I don't know. I think I think that's a fair critique that that this could not count as as a non-ideal theory at all. <laughs> but I, I'm I'm willing to consider that 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 seems like a plausible criticism.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, I, I guess I one could definitely take it in in a critical direction. Um, I think what I was uh, I think I just meant it as like a uh, like a completeness issue. It was like I assume there's an answer here and. It just needs to be fleshed out or something <laughs> um yeah, yeah and i think i think that yeah i think that the, the virtue answer is a good one and i think it raises questions about how like the distinction between ideal and non-ideal theory should be understood um so like what we have with in vitro meat and i think you're right it's it's a, a society where the only meat available is in vitro meat is going to be a, a fully rights respecting society and so we'd normally say that that's just a just society um, and that sounds perfectly ideal, um, but a perfectly just society isn't ne- necessarily a morally perfect society. It might there might still be moral imperfections of of different kinds within a perfectly just society. And all and all, I think all that shows probably is that justice is only a part of morality. It's not like everything there is to morality, and it's not the only thing we care about. Um, but uh, but that I mean that's that that would getting into that a lot would take us really far afield. I think from from like the subject matter of your book. Is <laughs> um, there interesting uh, question? Yeah. 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 Um, well, okay. Here's, and, and I'll move on in a moment, but another related question, and this is more on the non-ideal side. Um, one of the things that occurred to me when I was reading your book is that um, it would be good to think a bit about how in vitro meat compares to um, other possibilities within non-ideal theory, other non-ideal theory, p- theoretic proposals concerning um, what we should do about animal agriculture and, and our relationship with animals. Um, I think we'll get into that a little bit more later on um, in our discussion. But um, I think maybe the most obvious thing to ask about non-ideal theory and animals is um, like how, how would... In- the in vitro meat proposal compared to just like welfarist reforms that don't try to, don't try to abolish animal agriculture. They just try to make the lives of animals in factory farms and whatnot, a little bit better by like increasing cage sizes and, um, uh, prohibiting things like, um, tail docking and debeaking and other such, uh, really painful procedures. Um, I, um, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I I'm curious as to what you think about this. I mean, I guess what occurred to me is probably the, um, like welfare reforms are probably more feasible than fully transitioning towards in vitro meat, uh, well, maybe almost certainly more feasible, but like quite a bit less desirable because they're not rights respecting. Like welfare reforms still involve rights violations or they'd still be part of a system that commits rights violations. Um, and also like um, welfare reforms risk um, humane washing animal agriculture and thus risk like entrenching rights violating forms of animal agriculture. Um so I mean in some respects maybe welfare reforms you know they're a little better than in vitro meat because one of the things we care about in in non-ideal theory is is feasibility. But but I guess we care about other things too. Um so do you, do you have any thoughts about this like how in transitioning towards in vitro meat compares to welfareist reforms?
1: Sure, I would like to think that it's not a form of a welfare of welfareist reform. Um just because instead of making life less miserable. We're just eliminating the misery. So I like to think, as I mentioned before, I I viewing this as a position that I think can be palatable to adherents of all of the main moral theories. And so where I think welfarist approaches are are just are just you know palatable to uh, utilitarians or 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 consequentialists or something like that. Um uh, because I do think I, I think that the the concerns that you raised are spot on. There, that's exactly what I how I would categorize it is that I think that welfareist re- reforms have a tendency to to entrench bad you know the, the behavior that we should really be trying to stop. And so the goal should be eliminating the, the kinds of unnecessary suffering caused by factory farming entirely, not on just kind of making it a little bit better. Hmm.
0: Okay, right. Um... Okay, so moving on. Um, so what are what are some of the main social and political barriers that stand in the way of transitioning towards in vitro meat? Um, I think there are multiple chapters in your book where you identify um, barriers
1: there there are all sorts of barriers. I would say that in the research for my book, this was probably the most interesting stuff and uh, in part that was just sort of uh, I, I mean I think some of these these uh, these features of our social lives, were obvious to everyone before, but for me, they were, they were new revelations. Um, so I'm just, the way that meat eating is perceived by, according to gender, right? Um, so of course, the sexual politics of meat is a really great book on this topic that I would recommend everyone read if they, they haven't, because, uh, you can't unsee what you see in that book, I think. Uh the the connection that that many people draw between mediating and masculinity was probably the leading social concern that, that I identified. But also, of course, there there are strong divisions on the basis of political orientation. Um it can't there can be strong divisions on the basis of religion. Uh and then there are there 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 are uh there's divisions on the basis of cultural identity as well where I'm understanding culture is um or the particular kind of culture I'm talking about as being so sort of what what country or region are you from um and so and and then of course there are the social aspects that concern the way that people are used to cooking how they relate uh eating practices because eating practices are not just about what you put in your mouth they're about what you learned from your parents what is your family history how does how does your family history contribute to what kind of recipes you're creating and so and for many people the recipes that they're used to creating are not plant-based. And so it makes it a real challenge. I think one of the biggest challenges that people who go vegetarian or vegan face is feeling like they might be betraying their family traditions. And so there's all there's all of that. And then, of course, there is the, the element that came up multiple times about conspiracy theories. So pe- that, that are connected to some of those other identity characteristics where there are, there are folks that, um, because of their identity characteristics might be inclined to believe this conspiracy theory or that conspiracy theory. And that might relate to how they perceive meat and also how they perceive in vitro meat. You know, And when I say meat, of course, I mean meat produced on factory farms. And then by contrast, how meat is produced in it when it's cell cultured.
0: Mm. So I, I guess most of the um, barriers you identify are um, they're identity related. They have to do with the way people understand themselves and, and whether in vitro meat would be compatible with that self-understanding. Is that, is that right? Yeah. Hmm. Okay. And, but, but you think, I guess, I guess you think that people can change their identities, right? And so there's hope (laughs) or or something.
1: I kind of do. And I kind of don't, if I'm being honest, I mean, I I don't, I, and that's why I think non-ideal approaches might be preferable, at least as, as insofar as they're not, purely welfare approaches that are seeking to just diminish suffering um i think because i think that that we should recognize the kinds of features that give rise to i identity in the first place and that those those are those kinds of features are difficult if not impossible to shake off and so i guess when it comes to these these social identities my my main thought is that in vitro meat given that we're it's it's the technology is improving with respect to how indistinguishable in vitro meat is from a uh, meat produced in uh, as a result of industrial animal agriculture um is the kind of thing that could could easily be substituted for in in many recipes that could be respective of cultural norms, respective of identity, respectful of identities without um without changing much, whereas people are less likely to think that about plant-based products.
0: Okay, so near the end of chapter six, you argue that economic change, uh, namely an agricultural shift towards in vitro meat, <laughs> is necessary before most people will be receptive to the moral, to the moral reasons against industrial animal agriculture. Um, I'm wondering, uh, and you've kind of already touched on this bit, but um, is in vitro meat the only alternative that promises to accomplish a shift like this? Um, or could maybe plant-based meat one day achieve this? Um, I'm also wondering whether your view maybe presupposes something like a Marxist understanding of the relationship between between a uh, a society's economic system and its ideology, um, and and that's the view that um, a society's economic base determines its superstructure.
1: I don't think that in vitro meat is the only market alternative that could do this. I think it might be the only market alternative that's likely to do this. And even even so, I mean, I I, I want to be cautious about. How likely I think that it is now. It th- this this form of meat is coming to market in a lot of, in a lot of places, uh, so so we we do have good reason to think that it will that it will actually occur. It has occurred in some countries already, but the animal and the industrial animal agriculture lobby is large and powerful. And and so we'll see, we'll see what happens. And for the, for those same reasons, I think it's fairly unlikely that plant-based products, well, for those reasons, among many others, I think it's fairly unlikely that plant-based products will uh, achieve that same result or will be as likely to achieve that same result.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it, it might not presuppose uh, this Marxist view, but it's at least it's suggestive of it. Like the idea that if you're going to change people's um, beliefs, um, I mean, ideology is more than just a matter of beliefs, I suppose. But um, if you're going to change um, all the various beliefs associated with um, the prevailing ideology in a society, um, the idea that like you can't just target those beliefs directly, but you would you would actually need to change the economic structure because the economic structure would change the beliefs. That's a pretty Marxist. Um, kind of idea but but I don't know if you need to be like a complete determinist about it maybe you just think that like uh, a society's economic system is one of the factors that determine what people are are socialized to believe and what they actually in fact end up believing but various other factors affect people's beliefs too you could have something like a pluralistic view about it yeah
1: I think market changes that sounds right to me but I th- I think that you know I don't want to go that far I think that mar- I mean Who knows? Maybe I would if I were more familiar with Marx, but (laughs) I'm not I'm not unsympathetic to the basic ideas. But I think that if we have lots of evidence to believe that changes in people's thinking about something morally happen after there have been market changes and not before. So. I mean the whaling industry, and that's not my example. That's Paul Shapiro's example, but the whaling industry is a good, a good example of this, uh, where people raise lots of opposition to whaling. People in mass, or raised lots of opposition to whaling, only after there was an alternative. <laughs> yeah,
0: for yeah, that's that's a good example. Um, okay, so. Uh, let, let's move on. Uh, in 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 your seventh chapter, in, or in in chapter seven, um, you argue that growing and consuming in vitro human meat, which is a, you know it's a possibility, uh, growing in vitro human meat, uh, is not necessarily wrong. Uh, that whether doing this is wrong uh, it just depends on various contingent factors. Uh, I, I was hoping you would explain your argument. Um, I thought this was an interesting idea. Um, and uh, I was also hoping that you would explain uh, the, the conditions you think must be met for producing in vitro human meat to be morally permissible.
1: This is really related to the main thesis of the book, which is that historically we've had a tendency to think that edibility as a concept has morality baked into it in some way that that edibility comes with moral conditions or something and what i'm arguing in the book in this chapter is that what in vitro meat puts us in a position to realize is that the however you want to think about it the badness or the wrongness or or whatever of consuming something is really reducible to other factors (laughs) Right. And so I think uh, in the case and and this is where I'm going to make a distinction between what might be right about or right or wrong about consuming human flesh and what might be right or wrong about consuming non-human animal flesh. And that has to do with the preferences of the entity in question. And and I think that this that that makes me sound, uh, you know, like a preference utilitarian or something. But I think that a being's preferences are going to have something to do with the rights that we are obligated to respect as well. So I think, you know, in the case of human flesh, whether or not something, whether or not there's going to be something wrong with consuming the flesh is going to be reducible, reducible to factors like um, one, you know, if it's 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 going to be disease spreading, uh, but this, this is something that can be controlled in a lab. So I don't think that's the primary one, but I think another one is going to be um, issues related to, you uh, consent and autonomy so um it it might be wrong of me to take the cellular cellular material from grandma and turn it into a burger if that's not something that grandma wants to happen to her body um but because she's because she's the kind of being that's capable of having preferences with regard to her cellular material um and so, or, and you might think too, so that's kind of a, that's a consent autonomy kind of thing. You might think that's more deontological and, but there are other concerns. You might think the motivation behind eating human flesh matters. Like for example, if someone is fetishizing human flesh and eating it because, uh, they're, they're, they think doing so demeans another person, right. The, in the way that you, in the way that the world's most infamous cannibals might've been motivated, um, or, you uh, know. You know, Jeffrey Dahmer or, or 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 Albert fish or folks like that if it's if it's something that is intended to objectify or marginalize that might be a problem for that reason for for reasons related to moral character but it's going to come apart from the actual eating of the flesh itself intrinsically
0: okay right yeah um I mean I, I guess on I guess on the one hand there's just it's just interesting in to to just think about this for the- maybe for theoretical reasons maybe maybe there's some, like philosophical insights that can be drawn from the question of like when is it okay to eat um human meat or meat that's been grown from human cells um but um one thing i that occurs to me um that's maybe worth mentioning is that um so th- there's there's a, an argument against in vitro meat out there that um human that the possibility of growing human flesh um uh, sort of counters i think so the argument is something like um if if we go about Uh, growing in vitro meat from animal cells, that's going to reinforce the idea that um, non-human animals uh, belong in one category and humans belong in another category. And specifically that non-human animals belong in this like edibility category, like they're available for eating, whereas humans belong to the non-edible category. And the thought is just that like this this sharp delineation, delineation between what counts as edible and what counts as inedible, is a speciesist one, and we just shouldn't be like reinforcing speciesism um, by by just growing by, by growing in vitro animal meat. Um, but but you know if if we were to be growing in vitro human meat too, um, well that actually challenges the thought that specifically non-human animals are edible, um, and would so this 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 idea that we could maybe be growing in vitro human meat at least some of the time, I think addresses this this objection that um in vitro in vitro meat is going to reinforce speciesism um do you have any thoughts about about that I, I got this from a conversation with Josh Milburn who's also done a lot of work on um on in vitro meat
1: yes I've just spoken to Josh about this recently yeah i I, I think that's exactly right i think I think that if you're ma- so you might make some moral distinctions between eating human flesh and eating animal non-human animal flesh but if you're making those distinctions solely on the basis of species membership then you're being speciesist I don't think it's I don't think it's a concern to make to make a distinction on the basis of other characteristics right like the extent to which someone might have a preference against uh <laughs> having their their flesh consumed like it may be the case that a pig has no fl- preferences with respect to their their cellular material but but grandma does or something like that but then you're not making the distinction purely on the basis of species membership and I think once if you are if you do do that then you are treating some beings as edible and some beings is inedible sort of by their nature. And I think that that's a problem.
0: Yeah, that's, that sounds right to me. That sounds like a good, a good answer. Um, okay, so uh, in chapter eight of your book, you discuss the moral relationship that beings have with their own body. Uh, and you argue that this relationship is best understood as an existential relationship. Um, I was hoping that you would explain to us the connection between ch- like, chapter 8, like this chapter's topic, um, and, and, your, and this book about in vitro meat that you wrote. Um, but, but the other thing I was hoping you would do is also um, explain what you mean by an existential relationship. Uh, and, and also maybe say a bit about why you think a, an existential account of the relationship we have with our body is, is better than other accounts.
1: Yeah, I view this as kind of the weirdo chapter in my book, to be honest. But it's it's one that I was I I was thinking a lot about for a lot of reasons and not just reasons related to this book. But um so I mean it it strikes me that when we think about morality generally, um, or the well, when we think about applied issues in applied ethics, there are lots of underlying assumptions about the special connection that exists between a person and their own body. Um, and I think that and and not just and and I use the word person and and of course um there's lots of literature in in animal ethics about animal personhood and so on. So I'm not meaning to preclude animals in the discussion here. In fact, I'm explicitly meaning to include them. Um and I, I think so I think that, but that 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 idea that a person, that a, that an entity or a being, a sentient being, stands in a unique moral relationship to their own body isn't something that we think about very often, or we haven't, we haven't carefully thought about what the nature of that relationship is. And so in chapter eight, I kind of walk through a lot of what I take to be leading candidates because I I the reason why I take this to be directly related to the rest of the content of the book is that um, I think. The idea of taking a being cellular material is something that someone might just sort of have an innate response to for this very reason, because we understand that there's this this special relationship between uh, a being and and parts of their body. And so in this chapter, I kind of try to work out what that relationship might be, uh, why we feel that way. And I reject a number of different views because they don't just they they don't seem to fully capture um, the nature of that relationship. So some examples. So I won't go through all of them because so I consider a number of different ones. But but the the, the kind of um, the uh, pro- you might think of your relationship to your own body as being a kind of property ownership <laughs> relation. That this this is this property belongs exclusively to me. But of course. Lots of things belong exclusively to you. So, um, so, so your relation to your own body doesn't seem to be fully captured by that. Uh, there's something more to it, I think. In a way that when we hear, for example, that Henrietta Lacks's cells uh, were used to in, in medical research without her consent, it seems to be about something. Even though that those cells weren't part of her body anymore, our reaction to it seems to be well, it's, it's not just that they. They took her prop property, right? It's not just like they they took uh, I don't know a brick from her house or her shoe or something. It's it's a part of her body. We tend to have an especially strong reaction to that, and I also do, don't think that it could be just a matter of um, the special kind of autonomy that you you um, exercise over your own body because we could be autonomous beings without being embodied at all. And 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 so I. I think that most of the contemporary views on that that might explain our, the relationship between a being and their body uh, are insufficient, and so I lay out an account according to which, you know, uh, we stand in a special existential relation to our body that makes preferences with regard to our own body especially important, and so that's that's used to explain why there are some there are moral. There might be moral objections to eating human flesh that don't exist with respect to the flesh of non-human animals because humans might have special preferences with regard to their the 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 parts of their with regard to parts of their body that animals don't non-human animals don't have um, but we do need to be respectful of the preferences that non-human animals do have with respect to their bodies but just cell culturing doesn't happen to be one mm-hmm.
0: yeah i guess um for most non-human animals the main preference they might have is just like you know Uh, make make sure uh you don't harm you don't hurt me too much when you're extracting cells um so like like extracting cells via a very painful method would be bad um uh and and maybe also like obviously to have an if you're gonna have an animal around who is going to be contributing cells they need to be living a flourishing life so don't keep them in like a cage or something um make sure that for whatever type of animal they are they the various conditions needed for a flourishing life are met um but yeah, yeah, you know, I think I think you're right. That is that is an important difference between between non-human animals and and human beings. Um, I, non-human animals presumably don't have preferences about what you do with their cells. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm sure, I'm sure one could, uh, maybe, maybe we'll, maybe we'll turn out to be wrong. Um, uh, I don't know, maybe chimpanzees and dolphins keep amazing me. Um, <laughs> I'd be a little surprised if even the sm- the most Im- cognitively impressive animals cared about what you did with their cells, but, <laughs> uh, maybe I'd end up being wrong <laughs> about
1: that. Well, I'd, I'd be surprised too, but you know, always, always open to, to counter evidence. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um, but yeah. Okay. So yeah, I see, I see, the, I see how the role of this chapter in your book, um, it, uh, it's sort of you 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 make a you have this ju- this uh moral judgment a considered judgment about there being an important difference between a- animal non-human animal in vitro meat and human in vitro meat and this chap this chapter provides like a theoretical support or grounding for that considered judgment that's right okay um so in in the following chapter in chapter nine um mm-hmm. you argue that switching to in vitro meat is an effective way to prevent or at least reduce the risk of future pandemics. Um, you, you, already, you mentioned this near the beginning of our discussion, but um, yeah, I was hoping you would explain what the relationship is between um, pandemic prevention and switching to, towards in vitro meat.
1: Sure. Just to put it succinctly, when animals are crowded together in small spaces, it often gives rise to disease, including pandemics. And so uh, if, if we have fewer animals in really tight spaces, then all the better for the prevention of pandemics. And this this chapter was really interesting for me to write because I wrote it during a pandemic. <laughs> and, then, so, and there was all of this discourse about, uh, well, in in, uh, in our circles, in animal ethics circles, there was all this discourse about uh, animals and pandemics and not nearly enough in the world at large. So th- I, I think, again, just tying this back into the beginning of our conversation, this is a place where public philosophy could do a lot of good if people felt included in this discourse and we were talking to more than just ourselves. And, and things like that.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that yeah, right. Um yeah, I I think I think this is, you know, pandemic prevention is of considerable interest to the public. I mean, we just went through a pandemic. So being able to connect what we're working on to pandemics is um, a great way of engaging with things that concern the public. Um I, I guess I another maybe another thing I'd add to what you said. I can't remember. Maybe, and maybe this was in the book too. I actually don't remember. Um, but um it it I know one of the things about um eliminating or or yeah, uh you know, eliminating industrial animal agriculture or, or maybe just reducing it its its size quite a lot. Um and I, I think this I think this would happen too if, if we specifically did that by switching towards in vitro meat. Um we we wouldn't need nearly as much um feed crops for animals. Um like I, I guess we 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 still would need some animals around to extract cells from, but um the number of animals we'd need presumably would be like way fewer than the number of animals needed when you're raising them for slaughter. Um so like an in vitro a society that's getting all of its meat via in vitro meat is probably not going to need nearly as many um uh Cell contributing animals it's not going to need nearly as many animals alive, um, which means way less feed crops are necessary, um, which I think means like just less habitat encroachment and less interactions with wild animals, which probably also can I think also connects to pandemics, um, because like uh, it, it's it's anytime you look at any particular disease it's always a slightly different story, but quite a lot of diseases seem to have come from like some wild animal that like bit a farmed animal and then. That like disease that got transmitted gets bumps around all the farmed animals and then it goes to humans eventually. And like so (laughs) um, like often wild animals are kind of part of the story. Um, And yeah just the idea that like we won't need nearly as much to use nearly as much land if we just reduce the number of farmed animals around. I think that I think that connects to pandemic prevention, too.
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I there might be if if the if the world if this if this was a method of meat production that spread throughout the world, then there would be less motivation to you know to to try to get meat in places where <laughs> where 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 the, the the in places where we usually don't go, right? Um and we're not used to the diseases that the animals are exposed to there. Mm.
0: Yeah. Well, um, so I've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I'd like to thank you again for joining us to talk about um, your book, Edibility and In Vitro Meat, Ethical Considerations. Uh, Your your book was published in in 2022 by Lexington Books. Uh, The the only other question that I have for you is whether you're currently working on any projects. And if so, uh, what are you working on?
1: Right now I'm working on – well – Two papers. <laughs> I'm and they're both on epistemic injustice. So and they're, they're both in kind of different areas. One is probably more relevant to listeners to the podcast than others, but I'm working on one pertaining to epistemic injustice and non-disclosure agreements. I'm giving a, a talk on that in in a week or so. And then um, but I'm all, but on the topic of animals, I'm I'm working on a paper related to uh animals and and also um epistemic injustice. Mm.
0: Okay, great. Um, well, great, good luck with with uh, with that project. Thanks so much. Yeah, great. Uh, it was nice talking to you.
1: You too.